Hello and welcome back to the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast. This is part two of our interview with Ken Roffey. Hope you enjoyed part one. Thanks for coming by and uh, I hope you dig part two. It's funny because we talk about just distinct, vivid memories. First year, I was a counselor, um, maybe 70, summer of 71. You don't have those uh, um, warriors loaded, so I can't tell you for sure. But I think it was 71, first year counselor. And I remember absolutely sitting at the head, at the head of the table, I think it may have been in cabin six, maybe. And it was like, yeah, I arrived. Mm. I'm here. Now they wait on me. I don't have to do that anymore. Uh, JC, more gravy, please. (laughs) JC, more mashed potatoes, please. And I just felt at the end of the table like this was incredible. Here's the next progression. Camper, junior counselor, counselor, Better than junior counselor. This is incredible. And at the end of the summer, I get a check. (laughs) All we did was play ball, go in town, chase in town, drink beer, have fun. Just this incredible summer. And then I got paid. This was not a real good first job <laughs> right. because... Sort of set the expectations. It kind of set the bar a little high because I was doing something that I was incredibly passionate about having fun, and I got paid for it. You know, not too many people can say that. That's how they spend their life working, but certainly being a counselor at Ojibwe is like that. Incredible that I got paid for that, just to be able to be with my Ojibwe family, to be head of the, ca- the cabin, to be waited on, and now I get a check. Incredible. <laughs> a, I'll give you a, a funny senior counselor story. I'm when I started college, I was seventeen and three quarters. I was young. I'm the mm. October birthday, so I'm real young. So I'm a counselor. I'm young. I'm an eighteen year old, barely. I'm an eighteen year old kid. I'm in charge of a group of thirteen kids in back. You know, yeah. I'm the guy. I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing, but, you know, people, Denny, Mickey, they're telling us what to do. So we get sent out on an overnighter, Kevin, I think five, six, and Barry is with his group in five, I was in six. We get sent up to the Porcupine Mountains. And I could tell you as much as a non-dip guy I was, Mm -hmm. I was less than a overnight guy, (laughs) which is funny because Matt... Is actually the same way. Yeah. Why do you want to leave camp? The yeah. beds are nice. The so cabins are nice. Bed, you have an indoor toilet. Toilet. <laughs> there's electricity. Mm. There's 
dinner being served. <laughs> right. Why do I want to go in a sleeping bag in a tent up to Antonagin, Michigan, and sleep on the ground? It made no sense to me. <laughs> but Denny was Denny, sure. and obviously you're going. Overnighter, 5-6, Porcupine Mountains, we got the bus picking you up. Okay, Den, sure. And the nice thing, too, it's funny, just a, a comment about that. If Denny ever got mad at us, and he did, whatever he made us do when we got on his list, we had fun. <laughs> we sure. were able to figure out how to foil Denny's punishment, <laughs> because whether it was peg duty, and you've heard about the peg duty on the far field, of course, of if course. he wanted to banish us to the far field to figure out where that track was, we had fun. If he wanted to make us do anything, if it was unlo- it didn't matter. Sorry, Den. We just had fun. So it really wasn't much of a punishment. <laughs> so he sends us up on this overnighter. Things are going perfectly. We stop at, uh, I think it was Bond Falls. These names are kind of coming back to me. I mm-hmm. haven't really thought of that in a long time. Porcupine Mountains, Bond Falls, which is a waterfall up north on 45. And then you end at the Route 45 ends in Michigan where Lake Superior right. is. Antonag in Michigan. We're there. We're having fun. Barry's, um, JC was Skippy Cone. We set up the camp, and these were the old tents, the army oh. tents. There wasn't, you know, the new 2016 waterproof, right. you know, uh, you a material. You a switch and it pops itself yeah, no. up. You know? This was, we had to put the tent down, and the sleeping bags were the old goofy sleeping bags, but it didn't matter. You know, we were having fun. We, we set up camp. We cooked dinner. You know, Al sent us all the right food. We had everything going, everything perfect. Now it's time to tell, you know, ghost stories or whatever. And in the distance, over over the horizon of Lake Superior, there's a little lightning flashing. Hey, no problem, you know. (laughs) And I'm sure you've been up to camp long enough where camp storms are kind of uh, memorable. Uh, there's something sure. about them. I, be, maybe it could be because you're right in the middle of them. I always liked a good camp storm. I remember once in Kevin 12, backing track. I, I'm running out to the back line. Steve Lewis says, this is at 3 in the morning. Kenny, where are you going? I said, i got to get my bathing suit. You know, it's going to get wet. He said, Kenny, I just saw it fly over the rec hall. It, <laughs> it's like a tornado out there. No, you can't go out to the back line, go back to bed. Yeah. So we're, we see this... Uh, um, we see the lightning on the horizon, and I'm in charge. I'm 18. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be overnighting. Fortunately, the bus driver who drove us up, I think, stayed with us and was just going to sleep on the bus. Mm. I think that was our transportation there and back. Within about 10 minutes, the perfect storm Rolls across Lake Superior. Now it is torrential rain <laughs> sideways, lightning. It is the end of the world, and we're in these flimsy tents. And we say to the kids, whatever you do, don't touch the top of the tent, because if you touch it, the water then right. leaks in. <clears throat> now you tell a group of 10-year-olds exactly what not to do. With that, they all touch the tent it's raining harder inside the tent. Now, the tents are ruined. The sleeping bags are wet. The food is ruined. And we're running around trying to get everybody together. It's kind of chaos now. Sure. 
And Barry, being the practical joker that he was, the the fire pit where we cooked dinner was filled up now with two feet of water. It just flooded. And Barry would take his flashlight and he'd yell to Skippy Cohen, as Jesse, Skippy, over here, quick, over here, Skippy, over here. And he'd slide shine the flashlight in Skippy's eyes and Skippy would come running toward him and he'd make him step right into the fire pit so he would get more, wetter. Then Skippy would run around and Barry would say, no, Skip, Skip, over here. And he'd shine the flashlight in his eyes and Skip would come running, boom, right into the pit again. So now Skippy is soaking wet. We're all soaking wet. So I have to make the executive decision. What do we do? You know, this really isn't a good thing now. We're wet, we're cold, the food is ruined, the tents are ruined, it's midnight, and we're in Ontonagon, Michigan, what do we do? But the bus is here. So being the take charge guy I am, I knocked on the (laughs) door of the bus. I forgot his name. It it could have been Daryl or something. Daryl, we got to get out of here. I don't know. I don't have a lot of gas. And there isn't a lot of overnight gas stations oh, sure, in course. 1970 between Ontonagon, Michigan, and Eagle River. This is the real boonies of the Upper Peninsula right? in northern Wisconsin. I said, Daryl, we got to get out of here. Said, okay. We'll look for gas on the way back. So the needle's on empty. We pack all the kids up. We're driving back. And there's a... <laughs> I don't know why I'm remembering this. There's a town, if you look on your map, people, look on your map, Route 45 North, Bruce Crossing, Michigan. There's a gas station open. We fill up the tank. We're heading back. It's a couple-hour ride. We pull into camp around 2 in the morning, 2.30. But the dilemma was Al did not like to be awakened. Oh, sure. That was rule number one because he'd go to sleep early. He'd wake up early. Never wake up Al. And if you were being loud on the campus and you wake him up, you're going to feel the wrath <laughs> of Al. He didn't like it. So I had to decide, <clears throat> what do I do? You know, he's got 30 kids at a camp. Mm-hmm. We're rolling into camp at 2, 3 in the morning. I just thought he needed to know that. <laughs> that seems reasonable. Sure. See, yeah, yeah, but he didn't like to be <laughs> awakened. So I'm weighing the decision. I say, I'm going for it. I knock on the office door. He opens it up. He looks at me. I said, L, it's a terrible storm. We got rained out. He shut the door. <laughs> he just closed. He never said a word. He just closed the door, <laughs> went back to bed. Hey, I did my job. Perfect. Perfect. Kids back in the cabin, go to sleep. He was okay with it. You know, it just, it was just really that funny. But it's, the funny thing about it is it's 1970. Now it's 2016. And I can remember that storm and Skippy in the water and Barry with the flashlight like it was yesterday. Mm. It's just amazing how that imprinted in my mind, these classic camp stories that were so vivid today, so vivid because obviously they were fun and getting back to the word love, we loved it. Yeah. You know, as goofy as that was. Yeah, for sure. Loved it. I'm, I'm on the road. I'm sure those my, kids never forgot that story. I can guarantee you they probably didn't. And Barry, Skippy, and I never forgot it because <laughs> Skippy is stepping in the fire pit and Barry was still messing with him. I'll give you a good Skippy, Skippy Cone story. This was funny and it leads to Otto. Circus Day. There was Circus Day, Gold Rush Day. Of course. I, I wasn't that much into Circus Day. It was fun. It was different. It was just a, you know, it kind of was a day off from competition. Right. Which kind we of broke really, up the routine. Yeah, we haven't really talked about competition a lot because I'm 
have all these sentimental stories. And camp was very competitive, obviously. All we did was compete with basketball, volleyball, soccer, uh, um, watermelon, all day long, all day long, lineup, cleanup competition, just everything was competition. So when you got these breaks of Circus Day, uh, Gold Rush Day, they were even though they were competitive, it was sure. still fun. Yeah. So Circus Day, they had a pie eating contest, SCJC. It's a big deal. You know, anything SCJC was a big deal. Of course, of course. You know, there was a lot of pride on the line. The SCs never like losing to the JCs in anything. So Skippy's a JC. Otto makes banana cream, chocolate cream pie like you would see at a bakery. He was the baker. Mm-hmm. He didn't go out to Bonson's or at that time uh, Holprin's and buy pies, store-bought right. pies. He made these... From scratch, he could have sold them in his bake shop, beautiful <laughs> pies. And he puts down 10 pies for the pie eating contest. So we say to Skippy, Skip, the way to win the pie eating contest is the more you get on your face and in your hair, the less you have to eat. Makes sense. Sure. It's Ojibwa. That's, that's good you, coaching. You got to you know, you gotta know what you're doing. <laughs> I get an edge. I'll you got to have the edge. <laughs> so we're giving Skip pie-eating lessons. Sure. So the rule was hands behind the back. When the whistle blows, you dive into it, and you eat and eat and eat until the winner is announced. Skip puts his hands behind his back, and when the whistle blew, he dove into the pie so hard that he smashed his face into it so hard and hit the table, his nose started to bleed. <laughs> so Skip, and he doesn't know it. You know, he sure. has a bloody nose. He doesn't know it. He's eating the pie. He's bleeding. Banana cream, <laughs> blood. He's eating. Otto is watching. His eyes are bugging out that his banana cream <laughs> pie is now bloody, and Skippy's eating it, and we're all screaming, and Skippy doesn't know what's going sure. on. And he's just eating the banana cream he's pie. Focused. Finally, I think there was a, it was like a technical knockout, <laughs> that everybody was so sickened by Skip eating the pie, they ruled him the winner, called out the pie eating contest, and just went, took him to the infirmary to get his nose fixed. But he hit it that hard. Wow. What a competitor. <laughs> really give it his all. He to the gave body. it yeah, his all. Sure. But it's funny. And, and, and so Otto was just that kind of guy that was in, terrific. And, and when I was a camp shopper, I spent a lot of time in the kitchen. I'd say to him every morning, hey, Otto, you need anything? Which is always a bad question because he'd always need something. Sure. And typically he'd say, and you know the, st- the uh, incline going down to the storage room. Mm-hmm. He kept his flour and sugar. He'd say, yeah, Kenny. Give me a hundred pound cake and a hundred pound, uh, you know, uh, powdered sugar, a hundred pound sugar from the, whoa. And even as a 20 year old, 18 year old kid, hundred pound cake flour was a lot to put on your shoulder and bag. drag up those seven <laughs> steps of that 45 degree incline was like, whoa, okay, Otto. But we would ask and he'd laugh and then he'd always give us, you know, cookies or something because he liked us and we just did him a favor. Yeah. So fast forward. Otto retires from camp. I'm up there post. He's working at Eagle River Historical Society. He was mm. a, uh, he kind of helped run a volunteer, the Eagle River Historical Society. So I went to visit him because I always liked seeing Otto when I went back to camp. It's a fabulous guy. It just, I think his life changed kind of fate the same way, same way mine did. 
uh, uh, my life changed by his introduction to Al in Ojibwa. It mm-hmm. really gave him his last years of being retired as incredibly fulfilling by getting mm-hmm. to know all of these people. It was really a gift for Otto. Yeah. He worked hard and he made incredible desserts. And his uh, sister Catherine and his wife Margaret, Catherine worked with him in the kitchen, but they really became part of the Ojibwe family. Mm-hmm. And it gave him really, really a nice feeling. And he made terrific lifelong friends. So I go to visit him in the Eagle River Historical Society and, and you know I'm going to roll in there around two o'clock. I stop in town at, uh, what's the supermarket now? Uh, Triggs. Triggs. <clears throat> I go into Triggs. I buy a five-pound flour bag, that little bag, and a five-pound sugar, you know, granulated sugar bag. <laughs> and I, as I open the door, I put them on my shoulders, and I said, Otto, this is all I got left. You wore me out. I've only got five pounds of each. I can't carry anymore. You burned me out with 100-pounders. He was roaring. He <laughs> thought it was the funniest thing ever to see Kenny coming through the doors with, at the Historical Society with the five-pound sugar and the five-pound flour. That's and he made cookies out of it. <laughs> Why would he want to waste that of course, opportunity? Of <laughs> he used it. He baked cookies and, uh, and, and sent me a letter how much he appreciated it. And he really, really laughed. And he was a terrific guy. And we would, every time we went up to post or Boys of Summer, we'd always see him. Mm. And it's funny now when I go back to camp, I like to go to the cemetery just to see his grave. Mm. I, I want to pay my respects to him. Sometimes I can find it. Sometimes I can't. Katz always tells me, Cat stayed very friendly with him. It's by the Ford dealer. You know, go in the cemetery, look, line yourself up with the Ford dealer. It's right in there. I get it sometimes. I don't get it sometimes. But it's also funny walking around the Eagle River Cemetery. When you look at the headstones, it's all the people that own all the shops in town. Oh, sure. So it's really of kind of a history of Eagle River yeah. when you look at the Zimpleman's or a lot of the names. And Zimpleman's was the fudge shop before right, right. Trombley's. Right. And we used to spend a lot of time at It was Zimpleman's. like a soda fountain and It was a soda then, fountain. Right, right, We'd right, spend, yeah. you know, if we go into town with the kids or whatever, everybody would go to Zimpleman's. So when, you looked at, when I look at the names of the headstones, it's really kind of an interesting history and snapshot of Eagle River because I knew all those shopkeepers because I was camp shopper. Yeah. I, it, toward my last year, I didn't want to be camp shopper. Uh, because it was a lot of time spent out of camp, mm. you know, every morning, every sure. afternoon, go in to get the mail, get the mail. And I wanted to be a camp more. I knew that 1974 was going to be my last year because I was getting married in 1975 and graduating, and my camp counselor years were going to be finished. So I didn't want to be camp shopper. They wanted me to be, but I said, you know, please, I want to spend my last year enjoying camp more than town more. And they said, fine. And nice. so they, and it wasn't like it was real hard to do. I'd like to think that, you know, Mark <laughs> Jacobson before me and the people before Jake, you know, really had a special knack. Uh, sure. It really wasn't that difficult. I just didn't want to spend all that time in camp, out of camp. And so when... uh now, George, would, George Sachs made it seem like it was a very complicated job, and you had to really have your finger uh, you on the You made pulse. the, uh, I could tell you, uh, I knew, I took the red truck, I made the bank deposit, I went to the post office, I threw the bags over to the, the rail of the truck, I stopped to get the root beer, I came back. George, <laughs> it wasn't that complicated. And Reva, Reva would give me a petty, uh, a petty cash allowance of maybe like 30, 40 bucks oh, just sure. for uh, um, incidentals. Where I kind of had to manage that money. And I remember this is funny too. I had the red truck, which is, I see now has kind of been mothballed, but I spent a lot of time in that red truck. I drove a lot of campers. 
a lot of places banging on the roof when I was 18 years old, cruising around 45 in the red truck. <laughs> you know, today, I don't think that's going to happen. No, but I not. spent a lot of time driving kids in that red truck. And I was I parked it in Eagle River on Main Street. I got a ticket, a parking ticket. So it's like, I'm freaking out. Oh, God, I don't want to go back and have to tell Pearl. Right. I got a parking ticket. Or Reva, I got a parking ticket. What do I do? What do I do? You know, I don't know. I opened up the ticket. It was a quarter. Fine. So I, I took my petty cash. <laughs> I took a quarter out. Mm-hmm. I put it in the envelope. I dropped it in the Dropbox. It said, it, that's it. Nobody needs to know about that. <laughs> that, that fine has been paid out of the petty cash. And nice. uh, it's funny. It was really a different world back then in, 19, in the late 60s and 70s. But and the nice thing about Eagle River, or certainly camp, camp's kind of stayed the same, mm-hmm. which I like about it. To me, it's a time machine. I can go back to 1966. All I have to do is drive five and a half hours north, and I'm in 1966. And that's, yeah. pr- that's a pretty special feeling. That's hard to get. Town has changed, but camp has really stayed 95% exactly yeah. the same. And that's pretty special. Yeah, there's only been two or three new buildings built since then, and none have been taken down. So right. everything that was and there. a couple of new courts. Right. You know, I still call it the old and the new. Sure. And, the, <laughs> and the old courts and the new courts, or the old uh, uh, the uh, uh, old shower house and the new mm-hmm. shower house. I, you know, I'm not big on the trail courts or the or the lake courts, whatever. I, I need to go old, new. So, uh, But it's funny because it stays the same. And I think that's one of the incredible things, which we owe a lot to Denny. Absolutely. To keep it the same. Absolutely. Because it means so much to so many people that for him to work as hard as he does to keep it the same so I can get five days of incredible love and pleasure up there when he works 365 days a year and he's devoted his life to that is pretty special. And that place exists. And most people, if you talk to them, my friends who went to camp, they don't exist anymore. Those camps aren't still around. Right. Those places aren't still around in Michigan or wherever. And the fact that not only are they still around, but we can go, we can visit, I can go postseason, I can bring my family. It's incredible. Yeah. It's a really a special once-in-a-lifetime event that happened to me that I was able to get into this Ojibwe family. Yeah, absolutely. How are we doing on time? Good. Really? We more hit, time? More stories? The hour. We hit the hour point. Well, what I wanted to ask you about was yeah. we mentioned a little uh, competition talk. Oh. And I know that during a, um, you don't need to say it, but I will say that you're a pretty good athlete, as particularly in your later years as a camper. And there is a particular time sort of, I'm thinking this is your, uh, is it potential year? Is that, am I using that correctly? Um, where, Second year 13? Yes. Where well, you and Barry, yeah. um, I guess maybe when it came, oh, I know what it is I'm thinking yeah. of, Collegiate Week. And uh, yeah. you guys yeah. may have been picked pretty high, I yeah. think. Uh, Relatively. Of, one of you were the one and one was the two. Okay, Barry. Okay. Barry was one one. I was one two. Now, did... 1969. And now this is also a time period where you've got Futransky and Feldman with that basketball game. That yes, I've heard I remember it well. Barry was, in, times. Barry was in every championship game in 1969 and lost every one of them. And I beat him in volleyball. And to this day, I certainly take great pleasure... <laughs> Out of looking at that plaque and talking to him about it, and he still is really unhappy <laughs> that he lost everything. You know, it's fun, and we don't—we haven't talked a lot about competition, and I loved it. I thrived on it. I, st- I still do. Um, when I was coaching travel baseball, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 16, 18, right. I got into a lot of tournaments with a lot of crazies from around the city. 
And I just, I just would sit back and go, I've been in Collegiate Week. This is a piece of cake. You're not going to outthink me. You're not right. going to outcoach me. I've seen it all. I've done it all. So bring it on, Travel Hoffman Estates baseball team. I'm an Ojibwe guy. You're not going to beat me. And that part of the competition I really liked. Whether I won or I didn't win in 1966 or seven. I don't really think about that a lot. I just think about the skills that... The, my coaches, Steve Lewis and Scott Levenfeld or, or uh, Jim Nachman and some of the other guys that mm. were kind of my mentor and coaches, those skills they gave me to compete, fair but hard, win. win. Winning is okay. I would tell my nine-year-olds, you practice, you play hard, you can win the game. I'm okay with that because life is about winning the game. So there are no shortcuts. If we're out here two days a week practicing, the other, is out, other team's out here one day a week practicing, and we win the game, feel good about it. You deserve it. Yeah. And Ojibwa taught me that. There were no shortcuts. Mm. And I kind of don't remember a lot about, you know, games and this and that. There were a few. Uh, and, and I'll end when you say, give me the one story. <laughs> I'll give you the one story about competition. Sure. But it, to me, it was just the spirit of teamwork and the spirit of being with my buddies, whether it was the tug of war or the box hockey. We had, a, we had strategy. We kind of knew what we were doing. And I love the competition. I still love the competition. I play a lot of senior hardball. I play guys from across, against guys from across the country. Nice. I play a lot of it. And I feel very comfortable doing it because of Ojibwa. It just taught mm. me the right way to play. And it taught me, Al taught me to be competitive. He said, uh, we were counselors and we wanted to play our buddies at Menominee. And Al and uh, oh, the owner right. of Menominee weren't real friendly. Right. And Al did not like intercamp competition with them. Hmm. Uh, so we begged him, Al, can we please play Menominee? These are our buddies from Glencoe and, and Wilmette, whatever, at home, but they're counselors of Menominee. He said, finally, he relented. He said, okay, two rules. You play there and you beat them. He said, Al, no problem. <laughs> so we played them there. And we beat him. Very nice. <laughs> and he was very happy because I don't think we would have been able to come back to camp had we not won that game. Yeah, but he was, sure. Al had a lot of pride and he was very competitive and he relented and he let us do that. That's fantastic. I'll give you a, a quick story about a card game. Oh. We're in the Daz Lodge. I'm a camper. I'm a counselor. And... A group of guys comes up, like the boys, a summer group, but a different, an earlier year. And mm -hmm. Scott Levenfeld's there, and and I'm not sure uh, some of the other guys, but Artie Berman was there. And Artie Berman is, uh, was, is the quintessential Ojibwa, clipboard-throwing, hard-driving, <laughs> real intense. Artie was that guy. Whether it was Pineapple League, Peach League, whatever, Artie was just that guy. He was tough. Nice. He wanted to win at all costs. So we're having the friendly gin game in the dad's lodge. That's where they're staying. I'm a counselor. I roll in there. These are my buddies, my friends. They need a fourth. They said, Artie needs a, uh, a fourth at his table. Now, these guys are really good gin players. I'm not a real good card player. I sit down at the table. We're playing. Scott's looking over my shoulder. The game progresses. Artie says, I call on one. Scott roars, hysterical. He's looking at my hand. I'm holding gin, but I don't know it because I've got the three over here. 
and the five over here. <laughs> and Scott screams to Artie, you're bait. Kenny's got gin. He's been holding it for a while. And they were screaming. And Artie Berman, even he laughed at that one. <laughs> like he had never seen anything la- like that before. But these were tough, competitive, fun, hard-driving guys. And to this day, I don't think I've played gin since because I was totally humiliated. <laughs> but the story lasted 40-plus years yeah. because you don't call on one and lose. But he did, and he did, and Scott still really thought that was a funny, funny story. <laughs> now being a grown-up yeah. after all this time. You use that word loosely, Very Chris. loosely. <laughs> right. Because when I'm with my camp friends, I'm clearly not, <laughs> clearly clearly not. not a grown-up. The average age in that room is about 13. <laughs> yes, 13. But um, go on. How would you say that your time at Camp Ojibwe has affected your life? Oh, my God. It, I, uh, like I said before, I would not be the person I am, married to the person, uh, married to Mary Lou, uh, my kids, my life, my, my, the person I am would never have been the same had I not gone to camp. Never. It was just that fate meeting of Al and that twinkle in his eye of, I got I to gotta try it when I was so dead sent against it. And I said, I'll go. It totally shaped the rest of my life. Mm. Totally. A hundred percent. Not even close to, I don't know what my life would have been like, but it clearly, it couldn't have been any better than it is now. And that's all due to Camp Ojibwe. And that's a pretty strong statement. That's pretty Absolutely. powerful. When uh, you got a 62 and a half year old guy telling you that life would not be the same hadn't been for that chance encounter with Al Schwartz in yeah. the winter of 1966. Absolutely. Totally fate. So, two quick stories. Yep. When we were counselors, the main goal at night was to meet girl counselors. Sure. It's camp, it's summer. So, <laughs> we would have we just always had the plan. And the plan would be go to the laundromat because all the girls were at the bars. But at the bars, there were 30 girls and 50 guys. At the laundromat, there'd be four girls and no guys. And we'd go there, and we'd act stupid. Totally good, right? Genius. So, boys, counselors, if you're listening, (laughs) I don't know if it's still the same in 2016, hit the laundromat. So we'd go to the laundromat and always be girl counselors in there. And we'd play stupid. How do you do this? And they'd end up doing our laundry. A, there's a win. <laughs> really? You do whites, separate? Yeah, you know, whites here, color here, you know, hot, warm. You put the pot. Oh, will you show me that again? So they just do it. Now it's washing. Hey, you girls want to go out for a beer? Sure. You know, why not? And sure. we'd always go to a bar that none of our friends were at because you did not want to lead the girl, uh, other girls into the bar with all the guys. Right. And we would get to know them and strike up friendships or not, but we would always work at the laundromat. So one night we're at the laundromat and we there's some town girls in there. Town girls, always a interesting group sure. of the Pam and Gina's always. <laughs> Pam would, <laughs> when we were counselors, I would get a tap in the middle of the night. Kenny, where's Dopey? It would be Pam and Gina. They like Dopey. Don't ask me why. <laughs> and they wore this perfume that you got like at Woolworths that was just disgusting. 
I said, what are you doing here? And I heard, get out of here. Where's Dopey? We want to, I said, he's in cabin 10. I just sent him right over. Go, get out of my cabin. You know, like I'm going to get in trouble if there are girls in here. They're like the fun girls from Mount Pilot coming yeah, to camp. They would want, and they would always go for dope. And, and Dave would be, oh my God, and he'd have to get them out of there. They just like Dopey. So we meet these town girls and we'd always say to them, one guy would say, you know, we've never really gone swimming at night here. Have you ever done that, girls? Oh, yeah, we do it all the time. Really? Is it late cold? No. It's, well, you guys want to come back to our house and go swimming? Yes. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Elliot lent us his car. We're, in town. We're going right to their house and going swimming. Why not? So <laughs> this is funny. I'm, we're out swimming, and I'm on a raft, one of those floaty 55-barrel drum rafts. Sure. Floating in the middle of the lake. It's midnight. And we're not skinny dipping, but we're probably in our underwear, and the girls are probably too. We didn't know these girls, but we're swimming. Yeah. It's a good step. Yes. With that, lights go on in the house. Dad comes down to the beach. Who's out there? He's pissed. He hears the girls frolicking in the beach, on the beach with the guys. He's pissed. So the girls kind of run the shore. Dad, it's okay. Dad, you know, and Eddie Cohn and I are on this raft. We're trapped out in the middle of the lake. We can't hightail it out. We're not in the right. shallow end. We're on the raft 20 feet from shore, and this guy is peering out. And Eddie, Eddie and I are there, and I'm not sure why I did this, but Eddie is looking at shore. He's got his hands like over his eyes. He's looking to find out where Dad is. And I put my foot on his butt, and I just shoved him off. <laughs> and he just goes, shit. Into the lake, boom, splash, and the father is freaking out. Who's out there? Get out, get out now. And so Eddie goes swimming ashore. He picks up his clothes. He runs to the car. I go swimming ashore. I pick up my clothes. I run to the car and we hightail it and we get out of there. And Eddie said, Why'd you do that? I said, I just had to, Eddie. <laughs> it just seems so right. You know, we had to get out of there eventually anyway. We weren't hiding from the guy. I just figured I'd shove you off. And we did. And it's funny. And, and to me, that being on that raft floating in the cold lake at midnight in 1972 could have happened yesterday. Sure. It's just one of those funny stories. Amazing. So to conclude, we're at the end. Here we you go. give me that one story, right? Absolutely. Tell me one great camp story. We're playing the town team in baseball, in softball. And the town team, we're in a tournament. Mm. It's an Eagle River tournament. We end up at the championship game because we were pretty good. And back then, Eagle River Town played 16-inch softball with mitts. Hmm. Clearly to us, this was the easiest thing ever because right. we were all skilled with mitts. We all weren't big and big, had big hands, but you put a mitt on us, and now we're going to be real good 16-inch players because yeah, sure. there's not going to be a ball that gets through the infield and there's not going to be a ball that drops because it increases your range backhand and, and it just gives you so much better defense. So they were used to it. We weren't. But we got mitts and we practiced a little bit, not a lot, and we got Denny to be our pitcher. And Denny was a good pitcher, mm. but he never played because he was always busy doing the schedule. Sure. 
But we got him to be our pitcher. He was our secret weapon. And so he got us through the first couple of rounds. We're winning and we're winning. It's funny. We'd, and he didn't like to be out of camp a lot. He was kind of like not happy that we mm-hmm. were going deep into this tournament because we were out of camp from six till nine and he needed to be around. Sure. But Mickey covered for him and George Sachs probably covered for him. So we drove into town and every night we'd take the wagon in. And we got to be superstitious where on the, like the final turn into the, uh, we played it at the, um, at the fairgrounds where they have the Eagle River Fair. There was a baseball field. It's still there. It's lit. It's got, it has, it's got lights. And that's where we played. And turning into the parking lot, we'd all seen the same song and the bats would roll in the, in the, in the back storage area of the wagon. And he, Denny would take the same turn the same way to make it hard. So the bats all rolled and clank because we were superstitious. We were winning. We had to do everything exactly the same. So we're going deep into this tournament and we get to the championship game against the Eagle River town team. Big game, you know, a lot of pride. And they had some big, strong guys and 16 inches, a big, strong guy game. Right. Um, so it's late in the game. It's, it's a close game. We're up by a run maybe. And we've got, and we're the, uh, um, uh, I think they, I don't remember who was the home team. We're up. They must've been the home team. Yes. Bottom of the seventh inning. They're the home team. We're up a run. They have like first and second one out. Denny's pitching. The batter hits a one-hopper to Denny. Denny fields it, comes up throwing the second. But here's the problem, Chris. The Eagle River team, when you play with mitts, you eliminate your short center. You play four outfielders. So it's first, Mm. second, short, third, four outfielders. We didn't have a short center. At camp, the short center in 16-inch, no mitts, the short center is on the base, cover second base, throw to him, catch, throw to first, game over. Right. We didn't have a short center. We had a fourth outfielder. So I'm playing short. Dave Matisar is playing second. This is in slow motion. Here it's happening again. Here it goes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Dave and I are converging on the base. Denny picks up the ball. He looks at the base. He throws the ball, which he should do. That's he he didn't stop to say who's got the cover. Dave and I didn't know who had the cover because we never practiced and we never played without a short center. Now I'm getting into the Denny justifications. We have this <laughs> argument every year when he reminds me about it. I picked it up. I threw it to the base. You should have been there. <laughs> well, then, you know, Dave runs to the base, looks at me. I run to the base, look at him because we don't want to collide and we don't want to grab for the ball. Right. The ball sails between us. Into the outfield, tying run scores, winning run scores, game over, we lose. (laughs) Denny, still pissed when he hears his story, still pissed. Well, you should have been there, Kenny. I said, well, Den, you know, you're right. In theory, I should have been there. The shortstop probably should take that throw, but we didn't practice it. And we have a, I don't want to hear excuses. I picked up the ball. I threw it to the base. You should have been there. We should never have lost that game. He's still mad. (laughs) Dave and I laugh about it. But now my retort is, Denny, a good pitcher, before he pitched, would have looked at me to say, Kenny, if I get a one-hopper, you and me. Or Dave, if I get a one-hopper, you and me. You would have made, we would have had that play set before, Denny. I said, so you let that pitch go, and you didn't. So I'm not sure. No, I threw it to the base. 
That's it. So there's the. <laughs> it's only it it, it 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 it's the spirit of competition, and this is fifty years later or mm-hmm. close to fifty years later. Dave and I still talk about it. Denny's still mad at it, and the Ojibwa <laughs> way is just spectacular that because. You know what? We probably should have won the game. But had we won the game, we probably still wouldn't be talking about it. But because we didn't, we still talk about it. We laugh about it. And to this day, if I'm playing baseball, I make sure I know because (laughs) that's never happening to me again. Pitcher, make eye contact, and it's you and me. And I learned that at camp, and that's just a great, great story about camp and competition. And then he'll laugh, and he'll still say when he sees you this summer, I was right. They were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) well that was fantastic i cannot thank you enough for doing this this was awesome great stories you made my job super easy easy fabulous love camp and it goes back to that meaning of love that's that feeling you're going to get when you drive up to camp in a few weeks absolutely that's that feeling i'm going to get when i drive up to camp a couple times this summer and that's the feeling that everybody gets al and pearl Mickey Reva, Denny Sandy created this atmosphere of love that is incredible, and it's touched so many people. Incredible. I'm a better person for it. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Okay, that is it. Ken Rafi in the books. What a fantastic interview. Uh, He was great, and we had a really good time. We actually probably talked another 20 minutes after the end of the interview, and uh, the tapes were still rolling, so maybe some of that will find its way to you someday. But, But that will be for someday. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampoJibbleHistory.org. Or, of course, swing by the website, campojibahistory.org. Or maybe you'll just look up and driving around the neighborhood, you'll see the Camp Ojibwe Mobile. That's right. I am tooling around the greater North Shore area in a Subaru Outback covered with Camp Ojibwe. You'll know it if you see it. I, I don't have to do any further explanation. But you'll definitely know it if you see it. But if you do see it, honk the horn, give me a wave. Uh, I hope I run into a lot of people out there. And... Uh, we're going to be bringing the Ojibwe Mobile to a couple of events for camp as well in the coming months. So keep an eye out for that. But as for now, it's time for a cigar. <laughs> <laughs>